Welcome to Belkin's Growth Podcast, hosted by Michael Maximoff, co-founder and managing partner at Belkin's. Today's guest is Andreas Johnson, co-founder and CEO at Shield. Shield is a LinkedIn-based analytics platform that empowers people with meaningful data to drive more engagements on LinkedIn. Michael and Andreas speak about best practices for LinkedIn marketing based on data collected by Shield from over 2 million posts. Enjoy listening and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. How many active users you have on Shield app these days? We have a couple of thousand. Um, So yes, so I would say that we have a a pretty good data set. What is more interesting uh, in terms of numbers for us is the amount of LinkedIn posts we we manage and we process, right? And and that's the that's the interesting part because that is what allows us to actually say something from the data. Because as you know, a lot of people post daily, so one user is is actually a lot of activity and a lot of LinkedIn uh, posts. So that's really interesting. Can you give me a number of uh, average posts per month or per day that you guys have seen? So, so that uh, that's thousands of posts. So right now we've been in the market with our consumer version of Shield for for slightly over a year, and uh, we have uh, soon to uh, to be two million. LinkedIn posts processed in that time. So that's a lot of posts, definitely. Talking about geography here, Mm -hmm. is it more US, Europe? uh, Are you guys like international? Yeah, so uh, our user base is is global. We have our primary market in the US and then we have the most aspiring nations on LinkedIn in uh, Europe. So that would be uh, the Netherlands, France, Germany. Those areas are highly active and a lot of new users coming in. And then we have uh, the outliers, I would say, but but a very uh, growing, exponentially growing population on LinkedIn, which is India. And then we have the Southeast Asian countries as well, catching up and, and of course, Australia all, all the way over there. So we have a wide range of uses from the global market, you could say, but but primarily U.S., Nice. And who are those users? Are these like individual marketers and sellers? Are these agencies? Are they like consulting individuals? Can you kind of tell about yes. uh, their... Absolutely. So it's really interesting, actually. So the, the way we have our product right now is we have a, a rather generic platform. So it serves multiple use cases. And that also means that we do have a multiple customer segments coming in using our tool. So we do have on one end, if you sort of perceive a uh, spectrum from B2C to B2B, then we have all the way to, to, to one side, the content creators, the marketeers, the individuals who are on LinkedIn, being active on a daily basis, reaping the reward, rewards from that. Content creators is what we sort of label that category since it's uh, just you and your content trying to achieve something. And then we have agencies in between who both help individual high-profile executives and so forth build their personal brands, but also agencies who help sales teams being active on LinkedIn, uh, business developers, marketeers, and and even corporates with these employee advocacy programs or corporate influencer programs. And then you could say beyond the agencies, we have the brands themselves who usually run these certain uh, initiatives around corporate influencership, brand ambassadorship, employee advocacy, and so forth. We have sort of the the whole 
spectrum right now of uses. And this is due to us being early stage of yeah. figuring out who benefits the most, who are actually willing to pay for a service like that and so forth. That's sort of the phase we are in, being very fortunate to have multiple customer segments to work with and experiment with and, and, and sell to. Got it. So what was your kind of thinking process when you just started out a few years ago with the platform? What was your decision behind catering your technology to the specific group of, uh, of professionals on LinkedIn? Was it like, hey, we were approached by several folks that need this. They are sort of marketers. Then let's start with this group. And then we just see who else could be on the platform. So can you share like when you started out with the, with the platform? What kind of target audience did you target? And then was it like organically you started with that audience or that was specifically because you did your research on on that specific audience? Yes. So it's a combination, actually. When we started, we actually did something else than Shield, of course, and then uh, eased into Shield uh, over time. But what caught our interest initially was um, other industry players, so agencies and some big domestic companies here in Denmark. And they started talking about LinkedIn data. And at the time, we weren't active on LinkedIn ourselves. We had semi-updated profiles. We, have, we had that kind of very passive attitude towards LinkedIn ourselves. And they started talking about it. They wanted to measure brand impact and awareness on LinkedIn, but through their employees. So that got us thinking like, okay, so if you're a big organization, you have a lot of employees, uh, potentially uh, even few em- employees in a startup, right? It, it goes for all. But the case here was the, the the corporate, the enterprise level. So they have a lot of employees and they have a lot of employees who share different perspectives of working at the company. They talk about their specialty, their field of expertise, how it ties to the company brand and everything like that. And these people in a central role in communication, they thought, well, all of these people are actually contributing to our marketing, to our brand, to sales, but we can't measure a thing because it's LinkedIn it's personal profiles. Everything's sort of behind that wall that it's an individual owning their account. So you couldn't just get the, the, the stats and the social KPIs that you would want. So that is where it all started. And we had some discussions around that. And we, we thought to ourselves, like, why is there no platform for, for this? And, and that's what we then set out to, to research and build. So initially, it was these enterprise customers, the corporate customers that we were fully focused on. We didn't even try to market shield anything like that because we had these initial pilot customers that we were building the platform with and for. So it all came nicely together then. And then it sort of branched out from there to different segments once the work got out on LinkedIn that we actually tinkered around this and people started saying, hey, can I use that? I'm just creating content on a daily basis. Agencies started getting in touch saying, hey, I work with clients here who we manage their accounts. We post a lot of content. We drive leads for them. Is there any way we can we can use a Shield for that? And then we started seeing all these opportunities in different customer segments and, and basically just said yes to everyone in order to try, first of all, to, to help people actually become better, but also to see like what is the capabilities of our software? What is the sort of market we're looking at here? How big is it? And how much can we actually do for these segments and then try to go with all of it at once, at least initially? I think that that's how we found you, right? We, yes. agency, we uh, use 
LinkedIn of our customers. We needed data. Yes. We need to report on data. We need the data to be actionable. And that's how we actually set up for your platform just to, yes. to compile different data into one report and then share that report and, and create some actions on, on, on the data provided. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, and you know, that that's how a lot of agencies, they find us, right? Because they sit with these problems like reporting to clients on social KPIs on LinkedIn, but they may not have access to the, to that personal account themselves, like the agency. So what do they do? They send surveys out. They ask people to fill out spreadsheets with their posts and activity and numbers and all of that. And then they have a guy internally crunching those numbers, trying to come up with insights and so forth. And, you know, that's where we take a huge chunk of the workload out, automate all the processes around getting the data and visualizing the data in a seamless way. And then what is left for you to do at this point is basically looking at the data, trying to make sense of it, which of course is a huge task still, but you got way further ahead by removing all these redundant manual tasks around collecting and processing the data in the first place. So, yeah. Now, what is your take on LinkedIn? right now with regards to mm -hmm. how powerful the company is, the platform is, and how would you rate that platform, where that platform is going? It's super interesting where, where you're getting at with this. And I think that LinkedIn has been around for a long time, right? And I think that initially it was something different than what it is today. I mean, obviously. And um, they are, in my opinion, going through a transition. They have also transitioned their leadership from Jeff to, to Ryan. And of course, that is going to make some changes all the way through the organization. So that is one aspect, of course. And then I think there's an, uh, a thing with understanding where the world is headed. And of course, now with the pandemic and everything, people are more online than ever before. I would imagine, I don't have the stats to back that up, but I think it's plausible that people spend more time in front of their screens. Then LinkedIn for some reason, have this amazing organic reach. It has people in the right mindset. Not everyone, as you said, you receive a lot of uh, sales messages that are automated and what I would categorize as spam. I receive that as well, and I think we all do. But between those, there are a lot of people who are willing to talk, who are willing to engage, who are willing to, to discuss business, who are willing to try to make everyone win, people with the right mindset. And you could say that us sitting here on this podcast right now is evidence of LinkedIn actually working quite well because you guys found us organically through LinkedIn, if I'm not mistaken. And now we talk and now we record this podcast. So, you know, things start happening based off of LinkedIn. So I would say there are plenty of opportunities for everyone out there if you approach LinkedIn with the right mindset. And that right mindset, in my opinion, is about making genuine conversation or having genuine conversations, creating authentic relationships, bonding with people, talking authentically and discussing things that matters, right? Not pushing your sales messages automatically, right? Because I can only imagine how poor results you'll get from that. I haven't tried it myself. So I would say like the direction LinkedIn is, is headed is of course a huge focus on, on staffing and recruiting. It makes a lot of sense. LinkedIn has a lot of data on that. They already help some of the biggest companies in the world attracting and retaining talent. But I would say there are this you know, movement towards a social social media. So people actually being social on social media and on LinkedIn specifically. And I would say that what goes for products 
I would say that building products in the direction that helps individuals becoming more active, creating content, engaging, managing their inbox, for example, would be would be very interesting. And I think it would help a lot of people. So I think that's a market for that. And and like there's an opportunity here to build a lot of the stuff that LinkedIn has not built yet. And this is also, of course, something that we're looking into uh, at Shield. When I think about LinkedIn, I kind of can define for myself like uh, three features, basically. One mm-hmm. feature is connecting with like finding the right uh, business partner, uh, kind of client, and then connecting to them or person that you know, like a c- connection sort of like mm-hmm. uh, or friend list, right? Connection list. And then mm-hmm. the messaging and the inbox and all of that. And then let's say the, the newsfeed, right? Or mm-hmm. like content part, right? I think that their kind of connection part works really well because you can always uh, filter out, tag, find the right person, connect to them. The first, second, third connections works really well. And I yes. think that it's it's better than with Facebook or Instagram. So it, it gets more better targeting because again, you mm-hmm. don't know directly someone, but you might be know, knowing them through a different person that you worked with. So that's the great yes. way to expand. At the same time, what I think that, they are slacking right now is their newsfeed and the inbox. For the inbox specifically, I can imagine then when when you start having a lot of conversations, you you cannot filter them out, you cannot categorize them, you cannot do anything with them. It's like either you receive that, you read it, you respond to that, you archive it, that's it. So it's a very like dinosaur-like feature. So it's not like 2020, right? It feels like they have challenging rebuilding. It feels like they had an engine in there and now it's super difficult to change that engine and it's you know and it's, but i think that's work. actually true exactly what you said that they have an engine it's built on some technology probably some legacy technology as well and imagine having like 700 million users using your messaging tool and then all of a sudden you have to like overhaul it completely right you have yeah. to give it a makeover to become like 2020 standards in terms of ui ux and all of that and not only that, you would have to understand like what what is it people are trying to achieve in the inbox and how can we try to support that that they're trying to achieve, whatever that is, right? And it you could boil it down to saying like people are having conversations, yes, yeah, sure, but what are their needs? Do they need to set reminders on on messages? Do they need to flag certain people as indiv- as uh, VIPs? Sorry, and like what what are your needs around that in order to revamp the inbox experience? So I would say like first of all. LinkedIn would have to be in the mindset that the inbox is, is used in, in different ways. They would have to identify the most common use cases and try to see how they could uh, alleviate the pains that are coming with those use cases and so forth. And then not only that, when you've sort of narrowed down the design and the concept of it, then you would have to deal with your legacy technology in order to either scrap it and then build something new and then make the transition, or you would have to patchwork on top of the legacy technology which I believe is what a lot of the, the big ones are doing because they simply cannot just swap it all out overnight. So I think it seems fairly easy. It's an inbox, it's messages back and forth. How difficult can it be to create something that, that's actually super nice here? But I think when you are LinkedIn yourself, there's a, a lot of challenges that does not meet the eye when we sit here and talk about it. But again, that gives other people an opportunity to create other apps that will take care of the inbox, for example. This right. is something we're, we're looking into, right? Because it's, it's definitely a need that not only we have ourselves, but that we hear a lot of people have, like the mess of the inbox. Right, right. 
I do agree with you that obviously there are some real reasons behind LinkedIn decisions of doing something or not doing something, right? At the same time, I think that in that corporate world or when you have the company of that kind of level with that data and mm-hmm. that responsibility, like social responsibilities, business responsibility, mm-hmm. right? It's very difficult to be like agile and flexible and kind of build some real technology. So let me give you an example. Let's say when you will think about Facebook, right? And, and the way mm-hmm. they manage their network and the users and so on and so forth. You know, obviously your messaging on, on Facebook, like you have your friends, you can, you know, see unread messages, read messages, and then you can control your messaging on mm-hmm. Facebook and you never, or you rarely use Facebook for, for business, right? Or for some business connections, because again, your, your mom is in there, your pop, they like your photos and something like that, right? And then they have this very like mo- monolithic technology. So it means that you mm-hmm. cannot do anything with Facebook, right? You can kind of get some data from there. You can build some products that would be work in sync with Facebook, but you actually can't build anything for Facebook, right? You cannot build mm-hmm. like a new messaging for Facebook, right? You can build mm-hmm. anything like that. The same goes, for example, with Google. They also have like a monolithic technology, but what they did, they said, listen, so this is my Gmail. If you want to have your Gmail better, you can build some tools, right? So now companies are building a lot of, extensions and plugins and extra tools to help you to be more successful with your Gmail. And Google is okay with that, right? They give an open API. They say, hey, here is the data. You can do whatever you want with the data as long as you follow these rules, right? What I don't like with LinkedIn, and again, you work with LinkedIn more closely, so you, you, you probably can correct me here, but they have a very kind of close kind of API with regards to what you can do with LinkedIn. So there's mm-hmm. just a handful that you can do and the data that you can get, and they they don't actually allow you to... So for example, I cannot build a tool for LinkedIn where I can change the UI of my inbox completely and I can just kind of use that in a more effective way. So there are like mm-hmm. something that I can do with it, like just a portion of it, and that's it. So they don't yes. still don't allow it. And then when you think about their, their features, and again, the connection size are, for me personally, that's, you know, that's, they achieved the greatness with it. Whereas with the newsfeed or with the inbox messaging, they still trying to copy other tools like Instagram or Facebook, or they copy them, but they don't feel like, or don't think about the messaging specifically, for example, like a mm-hmm. business tool or like you and me and other people are using their email addresses, like as their main tool to communicate with everyone, with employees, with, with customers. And when we think about our inbox, we see the, the you know, like the received, sent, read, unread, mm-hmm. filterization, mm-hmm. clustering, all of that. And obviously, when we think about LinkedIn as messaging, we, we wanted to have those kind of features because we would probably use LinkedIn at the same way as we are using our email addresses, right? Because again, it's yes. like, what you do with LinkedIn, you talk to your customers, you talk to your colleagues, to your investors, to your fans, to your community building brands. So it's more like a, an advanced version of your email address because it, it combines your business and then mm-hmm. your communication and your social and branding, right? Like both worlds, yes. right? So th- the point that I'm making here is that because LinkedIn is so huge right now, there are no one else out there that can compete with them. I can't imagine building a, pl- a platform like LinkedIn and being successful as LinkedIn is. It won't be possible. It's like building another Amazon, right? Or building another mm-hmm. Google. It's just, we are living in the age when it's like physically not possible anymore. It's mm-hmm. just it. So now when I think about LinkedIn, I put extra kind of uh, extra emphasis on their responsibility because they made a stand, they're out there. Mm-hmm. And now either you do things right or mm-hmm. you just step out, but they kind of just step out, right? Because no yes. one else can kind of do that. 
So now there are like, there are two things here. So either you build the technology that would work for a lot of others and that technology should follow this, 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 and this, right? Or you open your technology just a bit, right? Open it up just for other folks to, to help you to build the technology, right? Like companies mm-hmm. like yourself or other companies mm-hmm. that are building extra things for LinkedIn. So that's my kind of cry of help here. Yes. No, no, but I, but I totally get it. And, and you know, LinkedIn has uh, notoriously been been a very close platform regarding to the API. And uh, in terms of what others, third-party providers, service providers can can actually build. And I don't think it's because they don't allow it. allow it. I think it's because they may not know what they should allow and they don't want to open up everything. Right, because their data is essentially what enables them to bring unique services to the market. Right, so let's say the LinkedIn opened up 100% of the data that they have available. So the people who who uh, own the data or have insight to the data in, in the LinkedIn products, they could actually get that data out of LinkedIn and do some something else with it. Then I I think there's a genuine fear of of you know too hardcore competition on certain products. And that would undermine LinkedIn uh, itself. So what they should do is find a balance, of course, open up some parts of the data to enable people and companies to build something cool. And I think it's super difficult to figure out what that open data should be, which I guess is why they haven't opened up a whole lot. And then all of a sudden you have people like ourselves coming in working with the data in new ways, enabling us to actually build the services, whether or not the data is readily available and accessible or not, because we stand on the shoulders of GDPR and the right to data portability. We have some sophisticated technology that enables us through active user consent to actually process data and so forth. So all of a sudden, a third party like Shield can come in and start building the applications that we believe LinkedIn is missing. And that is sort of our take on it because we see LinkedIn as a super valuable platform for professionals all around the world, like the global workforce. And we do also acknowledge, like you say, that LinkedIn lacks a lot of maybe obvious applications, right? Or obvious features at the very least. And they may not know it because they don't see the market as we do. Remember, they sit you know, at certain locations and they have 700 million users and they have a lot of different segments. Of course, they can be categorized and labeled into staffing and recruiting, marketing and so forth. But you know, how do you actually get an understanding of the most active segment on LinkedIn and how that's broken down and what they're trying to achieve and what their pains are and so forth? And I don't think they're focused on that a whole lot, not the content creator aspect, but more so the recruiting. And that gives, again, us an opportunity to envision the things that we think LinkedIn should have and then build them afterwards. When you acquire new users to your platform, do you use LinkedIn actively? Is this your main channel to acquiring new users or it's your main channel, right? It's definitely uh, a main channel, but it's without our activity, I would say. So we do post people Uh from our team and we do get, certain amount of views and engagement and that does lead the new conversation started which does lead to business later on to a certain extent but what is really making a difference for us is linkedin but from the earned media side so people talking about shield Mm -hmm. and what we do without us 
paying them or, or incentivizing them other than having built the product. So that is something that we thrive incredibly much on the, the organic word of mouth. And that's happening on LinkedIn. And people are having these conversations on LinkedIn, how to build their personal brands. It's never around the analytics that the discussion starts, right? But right. it's quickly where it ends because people are like, okay, I post a lot of content. I talk about certain things. For you, it could be running an agency, serving your clients, newest technology or whatever it may be to, to have you sort of out there as a thought leader in your industry. And, um, and then you, you may ask really quickly, like, what resonates with my audience? Like what kind of content is actually where the action happens and what is it that I can do to double down? And that right now leaves you in the dark because you don't have the data to, to back up these decisions, right? So then people start, hey, have you heard about Shield or check out your analytics here and so forth. And that drives a lot of business for us. So yeah, LinkedIn main channel, but the earned media angle of it rather than the owned media angle. Got it. Okay. What I want to, what, what I'm kind of personally interested in, because you guys utilize a lot of data from your users, then you use LinkedIn as your own channel, right? Are there like top three or top five of the decisions that you made lately with regards to understanding how others are behaving on LinkedIn and that impacting that with your own strategy? Are there anything mm -hmm. like that comes to your mind right away, like top three things yes. that you've changed? Yes, absolutely. So just a note on that. So right now in Shield, we are a descriptive analytics platform, right? So we process a lot of data. We store that data, but we haven't built like the second layer where this software actually processes all of the data, identifies patterns, and then suggests things to you as a user. So we do that manually right now with data scientists on our team. But from that and from like our own data specifically, we've seen that something like text posts, and you may have seen this as well in your feed, Text posts are super easy to create and super easy to consume. And text get a lot of use and engagement on LinkedIn. It's like it's favored by the algorithm. And our entire data set suggests that. We did two studies here, one in, uh, I think it was June or late May, and then one in January, where we took sample size of, um, of posts and looked at it and analyzed everything. And text just came out on top. So... It's always my, my go-to personally, content format. And I see a lot of people starting out with text as well and having a lot of success. So that's definitely one. And then, you know, we have identified, perhaps even, I would say, validated some of the myths around LinkedIn and LinkedIn posts, such as don't post links in your post, because if you're linking away from the LinkedIn platform, the post is not getting prioritized because of course, LinkedIn does not want users to exit LinkedIn. They want to keep the attention on the platform. So things like that has, has definitely been, uh, been verified and validated on our end. But I would say that the most important thing that we've noticed in the data from the people who are successful with LinkedIn, also when we talk to them afterwards, whether or not their activity drives business, those people, they talk authentically about what they're up to, about what they believe in, about their learnings along the way, and that kind of stuff, right? And of course, they position themselves building their personal brand, not only as people documenting who they are and what they do, but they also take in their subject matter expertise. So for example, with you around uh, the whole outsource SDR lead gen thing, when you talk about that, people naturally have a higher level of trust because of what you do in, in your role, right? So the people who 
talk authentically and with integrity as to what they do professionally, how that ties to them as a person, like their principles and values. And then they share that on LinkedIn in whatever content format. That is what works like all the time. It doesn't matter if you have 200 connections or 50,000 followers. That is what works. And when you tie in the elements of storytelling as well, like building something up, getting to a, a point of no return and stuff like that, even in a short piece, then you use the tried and tested methods of storytelling. You weave it in with your person and your learnings from whatever it may be. And then you have a very interesting content piece all of a sudden. And that works. I mean, that works more than trying to go viral with some crazy video. I would say that that's definitely some of the insights. Not very actionable because it means that you have to sit and think for yourself, like, right. how does this come together as me? But that's what works. And once you nail that and start improving that, you'll definitely see results. And when I say you, I mean, you know, people in general. Right. Can you validate some things for me personally? So when I work with LinkedIn, I think that, and based on my own numbers, People tend to engage and, and follow other people rather than, than business pages. So business pages went to the second and third priority right now. So it is very difficult to increase your followership and your and people engaging with your company posts rather than with your individual posts. That's true, yes. correct? That is that is uh, absolutely true. We see the same and company pages are really having a hard time gaining the same amount of attention and engagement as personal profiles. Yes. Uh, is there anything that I can do to increase my viewership for my business page? I would adopt some of the tactics from personal profiles. So being personal, being authentic, and maybe going a bit like not off brand, but off the corporate messaging that you somehow automatically adopt when you do content from a corporate profile, all of a sudden you think like, what are our brand values? Like, how do we communicate in a proper way? Has to be objective and blah, blah, blah. But if you actually try to scrap all of that, not that you're supposed to lie or anything like that, you still stay true to who you are and, and authentically talk about your content. But if you do it in a human way, even from the brand page, right? So you can actually see it's a human who wrote the post. You may use emojis, you may use sarcasm, stuff like that. That humanizes your brand. And that we've seen on several accounts, not only our own, that that actually generates some engagement. That is quite interesting. It may not be a lot, but it's definitely more than your regular company page posts. And that suggests that there's something to be done here. And we are exploring that right now. And we work with a couple of brands who do explore this right now, who have hundreds of thousands of followers on the company page with almost no engagement. And what they then try to do is take their old social media policy and throw it out the window and say, hey, how can we reinvent ourselves here on the company page? Because seemingly it's not working, but is it not working because of what we've been doing up until now, or is it not working in general? And I would say it's probably what people are doing that is not working in relation to the company page rather than the company page not working. Right. I mean, you can post from it, yeah. people will see it, but from there to get engagement and consistent engagement and followers on the company page, you have to do something else than what you're used to if you're not getting results. Yeah. And, uh, and that's sort of my take on the company pages. Number two, for you to, to use hashtags and, and, and use them successfully, you need to create like several hashtags that will be specific to the service that you offer and to the company itself, and then use them throughout your all content publications 
during a long period of time for you then to be trending with those hashtags and to actually people finding them in a more like holistic way. So it's not just a one-off if you are trending, but more like a, an overall, if you put like marketing and you put marketing throughout a lot of your posts, uh, and then when people are going to kind of look for that hashtag, then they will can see more of your posts. They will create that more mm-hmm. kind of round to, round to approach. Is that the case or you can use hashtag a bit differently? So... I would say that hashtags are a means of uh, distributing your content. So let's say you write a post, same post, you have two versions of it, one with uh, hashtags and one without it. So the one without it, you, you rely on the distribution and the feed from the algorithm. So your first degree networks, some of those will see it, they will engage and they will bring it into their networks and so forth. So it has this network effect. But then if you used hashtags, then you can get people who follow certain hashtags or people search for certain hashtags to see your post without anyone in their immediate network having engaged with it. So it's sort of a additional way to distribute your content uh, further on the LinkedIn network. So that's the way I look at it. Then from there, if you decide, okay, I would want this extra distribution on my content, then identifying which Hashtag, hashtags are relevant in terms of what is in the post is one way to go about it. So if you write around uh, marketing, let's say, you could use the hashtag marketing and you can even narrow it down and use others like digital marketing or whatever it may be that you do related to marketing. And then you could come up with your own hashtag, which, which could be like Belkins, hashtag Belkins, for example. We use Shield app. And the reason we do that is to make our content uh, easy to find if you know this hashtag or if you find a post from us and you like uh, that post for whatever reason and you click this uh, tag below, then you will see other content using that tag. So in that sense, it's like a way to discover more content as well, both at large if you use very broad uh, tags like marketing and then very narrow if you use your own made-up tag. So those are the ways that we see people use it and the way we use it ourselves. And I have one last comment on on the whole hashtag situation, and that is some of the most viral posts we've seen on Shield. And I'm talking about 10 million plus views on one post. Those posts does not use hashtags every time. So some of them simply rely on the viral effects of the content itself which suggests that if you're able to not use hashtags and get that extra distribution from that, but simply can get it from the fact that your content is so good or so engaging or so provocative, then you're doing a really good job with your content. So it's always up to whether you want this extra distribution mechanism to come into play, like using the hashtags, or whether you would just simply rely on your network and connected audience and followers to to distribute your content. So those are the two ways to go about it. Did you see that there are any kind of correlation with regards to how many hashtags you can get in the post? Like I, I've, I've read somewhere then if you have like up to five, that's okay. If it's more than five, then you are not being very favorable for the algorithm. So it starts kind of rotating no. you. No, no, I, I, nah, not really. I mean, so last time I checked our top 10 for a, for a month or two months of data and saw oh. the top post there, that would always be like... 30 to 50% of the post not using any hashtags, which always, uh, you know, surprises me. 
Right. And then you have the other ones and they, they use between one and 10 hashtags. And it's not like there's an, a, a clear pattern as to whether if you use two to three hashtags, it's going to go better or anything like that. And if you use 10, it's going to be worse or be punished somehow. I mean, we haven't seen anything in the data that suggests that you could be wrong in the way you use hashtags. Mm-hmm. But I would say if you, if, you, if, you just, if you use 20 hashtags, sure, you could get a lot of people from these specific tags into your post, but is your post and your content really about 20 different things? I would try to have that conversation yeah. with myself before using so many. <laughs> yeah. I say like if you use more than three or four, including your own, I would reconsider my use of hashtags this way, but it's it's just me and it's anecdotal, but it right. also looks weird. But uh, yeah. yeah. Should I be posting over the weekend? Should I not be posting over the weekend? And then should I be posting early in the morning? Let's say if I'm in Europe, I'm posting, let's say 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Eastern time U.S. so that I have like, you know, like 10 hour time gap to kind of for people to see and engage with this or should it be posting somewhere in the afternoon so that people you know when they derive from the work kind of in the you know in the subway or something they can be through that or either any take on the time and day i would say it takes you know some knowledge about your audience as to when you're supposed to post so if you know that your uh, audience or desired audience is, is based in the u.s in uh let's say Eastern time zone and, um, and you want to reach them and you know, your audiences, let's say marketeers, CMOs. Then what I would do is try to figure out like, what does a day in the life of a CMO in my ideal target group look like? And when would they be inclined to open up the LinkedIn app? And when would I then have to post in order to be top of the feed amongst those those people that I want to reach. So that's one way to think about it in terms of uh, hitting your ideal time to post and, and data post. So it's really difficult to have a generic message or a conclusion regarding that, which we see a lot of on, on you know, uh, right. a lot of different blocks like post 2 a.m. or whatever. But I think there's some truth to some of the, the times that I read other people <laughs> suggest. And that is, you know, your commute in the morning around lunch and then perhaps around 5 p.m. where people get off work and they just check LinkedIn on the way to the car or when they just came home or whatever. But I would also say that we have data that suggests that you can post 24-7 all days of the week, Sunday evening, Sunday morning, doesn't matter, people on LinkedIn. And that's because of the community feel that is being created. You don't want to miss out. It's almost your friends, even though you don't know these people. And you may have seen some of the networks that are, uh, you know, being established and growing like crazy, like Rev Genius, for example. And people are just sharing, talking, creating. So why would you shut that down over the weekend when it's super interesting stuff you are involved in professionally and personally interested in, right? So people who truly engage and truly use LinkedIn, they also use it at weekends. But of course, slightly less uh, Saturday, Sunday, because they have family and stuff like that, which makes a lot of sense. And then because you guys have a so diversified audience as well, you don't have any preference with regards to the time and date. You just post whatever you feel like. No, I look look in my data and I suggest always that people look in their data as well, because I can see in my data on Shield when I'm supposed to post, but when I'm supposed to post, it's not when you're supposed to do it, right? Because we don't necessarily share the same desired audience or target audience. And we may have people consuming in different ways. So I would always suggest you to check your data before 
uh, if suggesting I am, a place. If I'm a SaaS tech company, I market to marketers, sellers, uh, you know, mm-hmm. B2B, B2C, corporate. Again, like I have the, the very same ICP that you guys have. Mm-hmm. Where should I post? Where do you post? I post uh, all weekdays, uh, and then my I use my weekends to experiment a bit when I get uh, huh. get some thoughts around something that may be a bit off topic or may not speak directly to to the buyers that that we have. Actually, I I post more content that is not speaking directly to our value proposition or our customers' pains, but more because I know that if I put out some interesting content that I want to start a conversation around, then my buyers my desired audience would likely also find that interesting to some extent. And then sort of the side effect of them seeing a great piece of content is seeing uh, me and my profile and then seeing Shield and then you know how it goes. So that's basically uh, what we're doing instead of uh, trying to push an agenda that has uh, sales uh, labeled on it. The next one, true or false, if you comment under my post and I go and then I like your comment and then I uh, reply to your comment and then I tag you, right? Then all of your audience would see me you tagging and then that would increase the overall viewership for my post. But if I just respond to your comment without tagging you, uh, your audience wouldn't see that. Only when I tag you while responding to your comment would would result in your audience seeing me tagging you. Is that true or false? That's a good question. I would have to verify that actually. So the way I think about it is always when you comment on my post and you tag me and you like your own comment that tagged me, then I'm getting like three notifications. Like one, because you comment, one, because I was mentioned in a comment and one, because you like the comment I was mentioned in. So in that sense, you at least get on my radar as the author of the post, like way more than, than you would have otherwise. But whether that then shows up in my audience feed, I would have to check that to be 100% sure in my answer here. I just remembered a few weeks ago, one of my colleagues uh, reached out to me via Slack and said, hey, I've, I've, uh, I've seen your comment under this post. Is it for real? And I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't believe that comment. It's some kind of automation that I used for, for increasing the reach or something. And I was like, you know, it got me thinking like, hey, so it means that if I comment somewhere and then someone will, and then someone will respond, hey, thanks, Mike, for the comment, then they, my, 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 my followers or my connections probably see that. So that yeah, yeah. give extra viewership for that post specifically. So yeah. that's just interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the comments and the way you can utilize your own engagement to drive views back to your posts and back to your profile is, is, is incredibly strong. I mean, commenting should not be underestimated. I think it's probably the most valuable activity besides posting. And when I say besides posting, it's because your comments does not compound the same way that your post does. So when you write a comment on a post, it's sort of hidden. And when the post dies, your comment sort of disappears. I mean, it doesn't if you have the deep link, but otherwise it does. Whereas with your posts, you would always be able to seamlessly backtrack and find those posts. You can feature them on your profile. You can do a lot with the posts. So they keep on living and providing value and directing attention to what you and uh, right. what you do. But with the comment, it's more difficult because it's hidden beneath a post in a nested uh, conversation or something like that. So I would say like comments are super strong in, in driving traffic back. And I wrote a post actually uh, some time ago about flipping your comments into posts, which is a, uh, a content strategy that I apply and that I see a lot of people also apply. 
And in short, it's, it's, uh, it's this. So let's say that you write a thoughtful comment on my post, right? Because my post triggered you. So you write this comment. And this comment that you write, maybe you think it's a good comment you write at first, but, but you wouldn't really know until people start liking it. And before you know it, you may have 20 likes on your comment, which in turn suggests that this piece of micro comment content is super interesting. So you grab that, you elaborate on it, and you make an original post to LinkedIn with that. That's nice. And then, then you know if that post also gets a good amount of traction, then you pick up on, on the post, which is the same topic as your comment, but now it's a post. Then you take it and then you write an article or you go on a podcast and talk about this topic because you've got these small validation steps on the comment first with 20 likes, then your post with maybe 100 likes and that good amount of comments. And then you just take it further and repurpose the same topic, the same idea again and again and again, but you invest more every time you got it validated on the previous step. So this way you can, you can sort of be certain in a way that your content is going to perform well because you took it from a very low time and resource investment comment and then you just opt it a notch every time and when it falls out and people don't engage with it on a certain platform you could try another channel or you could just leave it all together and then pursue different topics or different ideas to, to talk about this, so, yeah. this is actually great one last thing for this topic i was told once once uh one of my colleagues or i think i read it somewhere that if you attach a PDF document to your post that would give you more views than if you attach just a simple image. So the PDF-like attachments get, mm-hmm. is, are more favorable for the algorithm than just the, the, the plain PNG yes. or, or just imaging in general. Is yeah, that- it, se- it seems like it. Yeah, it seems like it. The average view count on, on PDF or carousel posts are higher on average. On the last sample we did, I can't remember specifically how much higher, but I think it was it wasn't double the amount on the average count, but it was it was a good amount higher. And this is from you know all sorts of profile types. So even yeah. from your influencers with hundreds of thousands of people, and then your regular like half inactive users posting uh, documents versus images and stuff like that. So it, it suggests that LinkedIn wants more people to share decks and carousels and and all of that and. Speaking of this, it actually it makes a lot of sense also with the introduction of dwell time recently that LinkedIn is favoring content where people spend time on, like people dwell on a piece of content, consuming it because it's good or long or whatever. And the, the PDFs enable you to keep people on the post longer because you have these uh, carousels to click through. So if you have 12 slides or something like that and you storytell throughout, then people are going to spend a minute or two on your post, at least opposed to just seeing one image and then scrolling on. So like logically, it also makes a lot of sense that PDFs are favored. Then just uh, articles type of content LinkedIn would be more favorable than just posts in general. Is that the case or not? Articles... They work differently, and and that's uh, that's also interesting. So, articles, I think the way they're published is is through this legacy tech as well. They have this when you take an article's link, it has this pulse uh, short link from mm-hmm. LinkedIn, which which is some legacy tech that they use. But articles, they of course they you have more characters and it's it's long form, and you want people to to be on the content. But the way it works now is if you post an article, you get this small box saying 
promote your article or something like that. And when you type something in there and post it, that's what is shown in the feed. So on that snippet or whatever you choose to put in there, that looks like a post that is directing you onto the article. So even if people dwell on that, they still have to go onto the article in order to get the actual value from it. So it works a bit different. But articles are strong to like manifest a thought that you may have experimented with in, in your posts and comments. And once you figure it out that, hey, there's actually something to it, people are interested, then expanding upon that thought in an article is a good way to use the LinkedIn features and platform. This is great. So Andres, appreciate you sharing all of this um, kind of validations. Of what, what I'll do, I'll ask my team to put those um, as a bullet points under this podcast, just for people who are listening mm-hmm. to yeah. this, then copy and, and save this and then utilize Absolutely. some of those insights for their day-to-day work with LinkedIn. One of the sections that I wanted to touch base today is your personal entrepreneurship experience and the way mm-hmm. you started out the Shield app. I know that you started out as a software development kind of boutique agency, the Agile Squad, and then mm-hmm. you you start working on Shield app, and then you grew, and then now you are a product company. So yes. can you tell me more about that kind of experience or that part of your life when you started with the agency, and how was that? Why you didn't get the agency going? Why you focus on the product? Are you more like a product person rather than just running an agency as a sort of like a business or? Yeah, we started that as. Um as consultants, as, um, you know, advisors, trusted advisors to, to, to some companies. And this was in the capacity as an agency. And the reason for that being the starting point was because an agency is, is super easy to start, not run, mind you, <laughs> but, but to start, right? Because all you basically have to do is incorporate a company and then say, we're an agency, we do this. Then you're an agency who say they do something at least. So we did that because you can get that off the ground really fast. And we also had managed to land a client then around the time where we incorporated. So we actually needed to incorporate in order to send the invoices to the first clients. So that sort of came came together that way. But we figured that we could help people build products, test products in the market, test hypotheses and assumptions for people who want to go on new ventures. So it could even be, you know, in a corporate setting, someone has an idea and they want to test it out. Can we do something here that's out of the ordinary? It's it's going to run as this Project X kind of thing next to what the organization is really doing. And then they brought us in to try to help facilitate the conversation around innovation and how we could help bring new things to the market. Our contribution was always in the very fuzzy front end where the problem wasn't really defined. The solution was definitely not defined. And we had to sort of work around all of that. And we found that incredibly interesting. I still find it very interesting to uh, get involved in those kinds of, uh, of situations. And the reason for that is, for myself at least, my, my background in product service design, always been focused on designing, developing, and implementing a specific service. So that's been my focus. So you could say product guy. When I say service, it's also a product and vice versa. There are, there are some differences, of course, but, uh, but that's what I mean. So we started like that. And my co-founder, Alexander, is, is a uh, very uh, skilled developer and software engineer. And uh, you know our combination of product and developer skills could bring to life a lot of interesting ideas. So that's how we started. But we always knew that once we get the idea that we think is worth pursuing and that we keep iterating on and it's still worth pursuing, 
then we know we're going to transition into becoming a tech startup at some point. We just had to find the idea, the product, the gap in the market, a real pain to solve and so forth. And that is what happened with Shield. Someone came up, as I explained earlier, talking about LinkedIn data and all of that. And then, you know, we started looking into it from different angles. Proof of technology. Can we actually get the data? Proof of business. Are people actually willing to pay for whatever it is we are trying to create here? Like, what is the output that we can come up with that is worth paying for from people? Then we started exploring that and then we got into, you know, the entire startup mind, mindset and, 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 you know, uh, lean thinking, design thinking, designing for, for customers, always testing, involving them to, to co-create and so forth and applied everything we've learned at university and then slowly but surely evolved into a, you know, full-time startup for, for us and now other people as well. For how long you've been running an agency before you moved like 100% of your time to the Shield app? So before we moved 100% of the time, I think uh, the transition period was probably something like 12 months, to be like honest. Like a year, right? Like a year. Yeah. How many done. customers did you work with uh, over that period of time? I'm asking this just for, to kind of, to see, uh, kind of ask you the, the next question, like what is the difference yeah. between running the service business and running a, a software company right now? Yes. What are the main challenges that you face being a, a service founder and now being a, an agency yes. founder and the difference between these two businesses. Yes. So, yeah, it's very interesting uh, to talk about, actually. But I think initially we didn't monetize in the early days, of course. We, we were trying to figure out, is there a market? Is there a product to be built? All of those things. And, of course, we always thought, like, what are people's willingness to pay? And we did some crazy experiments with like premium, premium prices and we got laughed at. And we also tried very cheap prices where people said yes before even hearing about the product features. So, you know, that's the way you sort of narrow in on price. But um, but initially, like, we spent a lot of time working with uh, some LinkedIn uh, content creators, like individuals who create on a daily basis. And we got them hooked up onto our closed beta platforms in the very early days. It was you know, super rough uh, MVPs initially. And we, we talked people through what we're trying to achieve and what their contribution at the time could be. Like getting certain numbers are that interesting. Is that interesting to you? Yes, no. If yes, why? And have a conversation around that. So we spent a lot of time doing that. In the, and I would say that that was probably the first, that was probably within the first year. But also within the first year, we had, the people who initially talked about this problem or this space, they were still with us in the beginning because they saw that we were onto something and maybe we could solve their problem. But it went too slow on our end. And of course it did that because we couldn't just throw everything out the window on the agency side and then focus on, on Shield because it was way too early to do that. So we couldn't promise them a solution in, in due time. So they sort of fell off the wagon but mind you, they came back later and then they're actually a customer today, some of them. So that's pretty cool. But then we focused on working with these content creators, figuring out like what matters here, like what kind of data and numbers do you want? Why? Started posting ourselves, trying to become users of our own product over time, building it out like that. But I would say that the biggest difference between running a, uh, a, an agency with client services and then a, a tech startup is the way the, the revenue model works. So in the agency, you, if you're good, you build up retainers where people pay you on a monthly basis recurringly. 
actually sort of auto renewal on a subscription revenue model. And that's good if you can do that in an agency, getting people on these retainers and then fulfill every month and, and make sure they're happy. But you work very much project-based, right? You have people coming in, you help them with something and you hope that you help them well enough that they want to do a part two. And that also suggests that sometimes in an agency, you may hold back a bit on, on, on delivering everything because you want them to engage again so you can keep earning some money from the same customer. This whole balance of, of, of ethics as well, like what is the right thing to do here? In the product setting or in a tech startup, Money comes slow because it's usually a lower uh, price per month or you know, the annual contract value is, is probably lower, at least to begin with. So it takes longer to build up revenue. But then you have the, the beautiful effects of compounding revenue in, in subscription businesses. We're getting one customer, let's say, just for the sake of math, getting one customer every month without anyone leaving, will leave you with 12 paying customers going into the next year, right? So every new customer is just going to add on top of the revenue that you already got. So that's super interesting, right? Trying to manage that. And then of course, minimizing the churn, people leaving will leave you with a really uh, interesting uh, revenue model in, in a product-based setting. So focus fully on the product, making it as good as possible, helping out your customer segments minimizing the people who leave and then making sure that those who stay, they actually are happy and, and get value from your product. Then you're on a good trajectory. I think that uh, we've been following the same pattern here as well. I mean, starting with the agency and then growing our own product. And then mm -hmm. obviously the business model is the most interesting part here, just because mm -hmm. with the, in the service business, when you scale, you increase your expenses drastically, right? Because yes. you, you, you need to increase your overhead. And then when you increase yes. your overhead, you can imagine having an agency of 100 people, 200 people, that's a lot of headache on a daily basis, just managing yes. people and, and solving all the problems. In tech, I mean, you can have a team of few developers and then you can scale a product to 1 million ARR or 5 million ARR, right? Just increasing your tech spend. But again, mm -hmm. increasing your tech spend, it's, it's like a few percent more on, on top yes. of your expense list or your PL. And in, in service business, you increase that like 30% more, 40% more. No, exactly. Right? So exactly. I mean, I that is exactly uh, you know the interesting part, right? Around the rev revenue models and the the way you can actually scale your company without scaling on on people. So you don't have to put people in front of growth. You can actually have growth without adding people to a certain extent. I know it's, uh, right. but that's also what you're saying, right? Yeah. That you can actually, if you build a product that does not need a lot of support, does mm -hmm. not need a lot of customer success, but where you basically make the sale or people they buy just themselves and activate and use, then you can scale uh, like crazy without adding too much overhead on human resources and salaries. And that's, that's the interesting part at scale with that kind of uh, business model and that kind of revenue model specifically. Uh, absolutely. And this is what has always been my interest. Like how, do, how does these models, both business model and revenue models, more specifically, how do, how do they actually work and how can we make them work in our favor in an ethical way? One of the challenges that we face here is when you start building an agency, you kind of develop this agency-like mindset, servicing the customer, getting that retainer on a monthly basis, managing people and building out the process. And that 
make you mm-hmm. the way you run the business in a very kind of unique way if you want to be successful. And then when you start building this tech and you start hiring engineering and, 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 and managing engineering team, it's totally different process. The way you approach the problem, the way you approach the uh, you know the deadlines, and the way because in service business you always know that you if you you know if you stretch a bit, you know if you get an extra hour put in the work, you can mm-hmm. hit the deadline. It's more it's all, only lazy people in the service business are not hitting the deadlines. You can always work extra yes. hours and getting the job done. In tech, though, you cannot predict how much time would it take for you to develop certain no. feature or solve the problem. It's just ridiculous that when you put the deadline, you never meet those deadlines because something mm-hmm. comes up. You, you spend extra weeks solving the problem, so on and so forth. So you were in a unique situation where you had an agency, but that agency was developing a tech. So mm-hmm. you knew how to operate in a way that you can hit the deadline with your tech. So the mm-hmm. question I had, that I have, can you recommend anything for me being a tech entrepreneur myself, but running the agency? on how I can set up a process for my engineering team to be successful and which is different from the agency, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, we tried the, the agile methodology, which we tried Kanban, Scrum, and all of that. It just doesn't work for us. Just because we used to run things very fast and efficient in the agency, and then we, we, we like to apply the same approach for our engineering team, and that just sucks. So any, mm-hmm. any take on that? Oh man, it's a good question. Uh, I would say that. So the way we run it is we always want something done rather than perfect, right? And we use, uh, you know, the principles from from Scrum and Kanban and, and continuous integration and so forth. But the way we want it is to push something to the product as fast as possible to see how it's received, right? So we really like push the, the agile mindset to the, to the very edge saying, okay, so we have this idea about something. What is like the minimum, I hate to use the word minimum viable product, but like, what is it really? Like, is it one number that we're trying to deliver to users? Why do we then have to build out beautiful UI UX if it's the number that has the value? So we're going to push in the number, we're going to test it with some people and we're going to see how they receive it. And if they receive it well, then we can go and take it up a notch. We can uh, have a UXer on the case, try to figure out how to incorporate it in the product uh, in the right way, you could say, and then sort of roll it out. But the way we work is basically get something out there as fast as possible, build something like almost like a hackathon, right? So we get this new idea and then it's just, okay, let's create a solution. We don't have much time, crazy deadlines, which makes people think more in a lean way. Like what is the key thing here we need to communicate? Not all the bells and whistles, but what is it that we believe will add value to the end users? Build that, ship it to a certain amount of users and see how it's received. That is my my go-to because it works every time. Because you don't invest heavy if you're off and if you're right, just like with the comments where you uh, sort of float your ideas, you figure out very early and very cheaply whether you answer something or not. And I mean, we do it with across all segments, even with enterprise. We just hook up our, our point of contact saying, hey, man, you need to check this out. Uh, we know it's rough on the edges and everything, but uh, try to refresh. And then they refresh that browser and check it out. And they say, man, this number is amazing. It would be great if I could have it over here with this and that. And then I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the conversation that I want to have. And you know, that's how we do it. That's working quite well. This is a great example. I mean, having 
kind of testing the feature and, and moving it through the product as soon as you can with the minimum resources invested, seeing yes. how it works. And that's it because you usually you end up developing and trying to improve the feature, make it perfect before you release yes. it. And, and what is what is perfect anyway, right? You, you wouldn't know unless you get feedback from the people who need to use it. Well, for engineers, it's probably like a flawless work, right? It's like yeah, exactly. you, you always want yeah. like to build it. Like you can, you can say, you know what? I want to refactor this code or I want to change this a bit. And it always takes extra days. So yes. uh, I think that having that, that like a head of engineering or a, a, a CDO, a person that understands the business side of it as well as the yes. engineering side and, and yes. being not just an engineer, but also like a, a business person yes. makes a lot of sense, right? Just because yes, the engineer will build, will build, will build and build and build and build without releasing yes. anything, just building. Right? No, no, but, but you're hundred percent right. I think it's it's a really good phrasing that that the the, the CTO head of engineering uh, has to have a uh, certain degree of a business mindset, right? Because time to market matters. And you can always perfect your code and get rid of all the spaghetti between the lines and all of that. But, but you know, if you spend a lot of time doing that and the, and the actual thing you're building is not, you know, well-received, you just wasted all, all of this time where you could have done something, uh, something else. And that is my point, right? You, you want to be able to confidently say, we are going to spend more time on this. And when it's something that you have never pushed to the market before, but only, you know, discussed internally, you don't know, right? You just don't know. You can use your uh, rational thinking, great arguments, your logic and everything else, even uh, you know historic data, of course, but you would only ever be able to predict with a certain uh, level of, of uh, probability and of course chance. So you have to test, right? You just have to get it out there as soon as possible to minimize the risk of, of building something that's not worth building. And uh, yeah. Well put. Business uh, business savvy uh, engineers uh, are crazy uh, valuable. All right, Andreas, I appreciate the time. I know we have uh, like a one or two more minutes. So we already talked about where you need to be as a person or as a business individual, as a company to go and check out Shield App and why mm-hmm. you need to use it, right? So the website is shieldapp.ai, right? Do you guys have Correct. any free trial or a demo that I can check out before I sign up? Of course, yeah, we do have a 10-day free trial across all our plans. And it's mostly for people just signing up for themselves, trying it out. As soon as you want to trial with more people, you can just get in touch with our team through the intercom chat and we'll help you uh, get everything set up in uh, in minutes. It's a one-time registration and it's uh, super seamless. It should be uh, no problem at all. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Belkin's Growth Podcast and found it useful. Be sure to subscribe and catch upcoming episodes on iTunes and Stitcher.